You're listening to Radio Ed, a University of Denver podcast. We're your hosts, Lauren Fultenberg, Alyssa Hurst, and I'm Nicole Militello. Ever since the January 6th attack at the U.S. Capitol, there's been a growing conversation about extremism in the United States. The Department of Homeland Security just warned publicly for the first time that the United States is facing a growing threat from violent domestic extremists who were emboldened by that attack. So we wanted to learn what it actually means to be an extremist. Is there a difference between people with extreme views and the people who are in an extremist group? And how can a neighbor, family member, or friend go down that path? So today, we're getting some answers from Rachel Nielsen. She's a psychologist and the director of the Colorado Resilience Collaborative at the University of Denver, which focuses on combating violent extremism. Can you just start with explaining what it actually means to be an extremist or part of an extremist group? I don't know that there is a fantastic, solid definition out there, frankly. It's still fairly subjective. And and much of this runs into the U.S. space where um, extremist ideology kind of started our country. And there's a lot of emphasis on freedom of speech. So um, there's nothing necessarily uh, harmful or, or uh, problematic about having extremist beliefs. And, and you'll see in the professional space and in the federal and security space, that it's really the separation between a belief and a plan to hurt other people that becomes the dividing point. Got it. So just adding on that factor of being willing to take a violent measure after having the extremist thought. Yeah. And there's absolutely no profile. And so what we want people to understand is you can have a 13-year-old who is messing around on ISIS websites Um, You can have a girl who is 15 years old who is going to travel to Syria. We've had that in Colorado. That's an actual case. It wasn't that long ago that I, um, you know, met with a teenage girl whose co-conspirators online had all been arrested for material support to ISIS, but because she was a minor, um, she couldn't be charged. And she was a very shy, sweet girl uh, that you would be absolutely shocked the things that she was posting online. And, And so much of what we want to get across to people is there is no profile and we just need to focus on behavior. So if someone is saying, I want to do this violent thing or some, or I hate this other group of people, that we take it seriously and we follow it up at least with a question about what do you mean by that? The new administration um, recently ordered an assessment on violent extremist groups in the United States. Can you just put this into perspective for us? What do we currently know about how prevalent this is in the U.S.? I am actually very excited about this because there hasn't been a nationwide assessment or understanding of this. So uh, we have the Department of Homeland Security that was created after 9-11, but there's no organized system to coordinate states or to share information or even best practices. It's actually one of the things that the Colorado Resilience Collaborative was was tasked with piloting is how do we um, find community-based ways that are effective for our areas that get at violent extremism, but the ideologies can be so different, um, not just within our nation, but around the world, um, that we tend to come down to, yes, just the division between freedom of thought and 
uh, harm to others. So what are some of the most prevalent groups that we see in the United States and what ways do we typically see them act? So initially when Homeland Security was created and we even started talking more about this domestic terrorism threat, it was the post 9-11 ISIS sort of ideology that um, seemed to be of most concern. Then we have this era of school shootings and lone actors and people that are operating from more of a personal grievance. And then just in the last several years, it's taken on this flavor of white nationalism, white supremacy, and alt-right rhetoric that I, I think still has to be differentiated from like Republicans as a group versus people who um, take Republican notions and then use that as a premise for committing violence. Can you take us on the path of how someone might become part of an extremist group? Yeah, what we have found is that it really begins with a personal issue. The ideology doesn't come first. So just like other forms of targeted violence, workplace violence, school shootings, um, attacks on location like the Aurora Theater shooting, that violent extremism uh, starts in the same place where someone has some perceived injustice. And I really wanna emphasize the word perceived because other people might look at this person's life and think that their life is great. But if you listen to them talk about what is unfair in their world or what they see in the community that's not okay with them, you would be better equipped to have that conversation about like what, what's actually feeding their anger and their resentment towards others. And then there are a lot of behavioral models and research-based models that have been built around this, but they all kind of map on each other. And the general trend is that that injustice in someone's personal life then gets magnified in uh, like a social media space or when they're interacting with an ideology and this us versus them narrative becomes more polarized and they have people cheering them on in a sense. The echo chamber effect is pretty significant and they may determine through those channels that violence is really the only way to get back at the person or the group that hurt them or that they think hurt them or to make their statement to the world. Uh, and, and this is why we see a lot of activity on social media where people's way of talking about something gets more violent and that there's a, a purpose in people putting out manifestos and, and posts. Yeah. We were really curious about the role that social media plays in all of this. And if it's just given extremist groups platforms to reach more people, like you were saying, they can go online and kind of find a community in what way, I guess, has uh, social media shaped how people find and join extremist groups? Numerous ways. So one is that for the first time ever, people are able to radicalize online, that they don't even have to engage with an individual or a recruiter, quote unquote, but you can just find propaganda and you can find information and um, go through the same process even without human contact. So it makes it really hard to detect and interrupt and uh, makes it hard even for friends and family members to know what's going on with the person. Um, and frankly, we see that in, in the bystander research as well, that 
family may know that something has changed with the person that they love, but they don't know what, because they have no idea what's going on in the online space. It's definitely a um, one of the latest and greatest recruitment opportunities for violent extremist groups. I think the January 6th attacks are uh, an example of how you can organize people that you don't even know and have no proximity to, that lots of people knew about this and promoted it even if they didn't travel to D.C. on the 6th. And then the other thing is the way that the social media algorithms work. So if anyone saw The Social Dilemma, the idea that the thing that sells is the thing that's interesting, that's provocative. And so as we click through things, the social media algorithms are giving us things that are sensational. And so it tends to be the more polarized views. Also, the research says that most people who fall in the middle tend to back out of those conversations and just leave the platform or leave the chat because it's uncomfortable, it's controversial. And so you only have the most extreme voices out there. And so it can look more representative than it really is. So then what happens when tech companies start to cut off access to certain groups? Do you think that helps or hurts extremism? Yeah, I think this is going to have both effects. Um, And I think Parler and everything that happened with that recently is, is a prime example. So For years, there has been an expectation or a pressure on the larger social media companies to do something about how their platform is used. So Facebook and Twitter and, you know, things like that being being the prime ones. So on one hand, it seems like progress that they're taking responsibility for the use of their product. And truly, they're the only ones that would be able to regulate their own system. So lots of people think the government tracks their activity online. They absolutely don't. They don't have the time. They don't have the capacity. But the social media companies themselves absolutely do. And uh, and there have been conversations, for example, kind of like suicide prevention, where Facebook or Twitter or any of the other large companies could have a little pop-up that that occurs when someone is using certain key terms that says, do you need to talk to someone just like you'd get an 1-800 number for suicide prevention? And, And those things haven't happened yet. So it does seem like progress that companies are taking responsibility, but I think the flip side of this that we need to be aware of is that if they're pushed out of the mainstream spaces, then what platforms are going to either be encrypted, which they already use, um, violent extremist groups use, or that again, with the echo chamber thing, that it'll only be certain voices that have the same extremist thoughts that then are feeding off of each other without any kind of like critical dialogue. And so you could quickly go down this rabbit hole of people inciting one another and agreeing with one another, uh, again, that violence is the answer. So for example, with Parler, I'm, I'm anticipating that each social media group will kind of end up with a profile, like a, a political stance, a social stance that's associated with them, and then traffic will be driven to them. And you could end up with even more extremist beliefs. 
You recently told the Denver Post that 2020 was the perfect breeding ground for extremism. Why do you say that? I would say the pandemic, of course, puts uh, excessive pressure on everyone across the board, right? So it's it's really one of the only situations where I would say everyone in the world is affected and everyone is dealing with their own set of stressors and, and very much in isolation. So frustrated, desperate people tend to make bad decisions. Fear-based decision-making uh, is, is oftentimes pretty limited. And I, I think it leads to us lashing out at each other. The social media space got really toxic. It's probably no surprise to anyone listening, I, you know, to have had a Facebook friend or someone from high school that now you have completely cut ties with because of something that you or the other person posted. And so in this pressurized environment, we tend to polarize anyway, and we're, we find some safety and figuring out who are my safe people, um, my internal group versus everybody else. And so it already was um, kind of resulting in this us versus them stuff, or at least setting up uh, an environment for, yeah, just cutting some people out and getting more polarized in our opinions. I think adding uh, the murder of George Floyd and then all of the social unrest beginning at the, in early summer of 2020, then add in the presidential elections that so much of this was picking a team and that we do better when we're face-to-face with other people. Our words and our opinions are more measured in the online space. You can shout into the void and then cut off all dissenting opinions. And, uh, and I think that's um, honestly much of it. And then at the very end with the election and with um, Trump's insistence that, you know, the, this was essentially a huge election hoax fed into people's distrust of all systems anyway. Yeah. So it, it really just makes people desperate for um, safety at this point. And, and much of violent extremism is about providing safety, security, and a group. Yeah, it seems like a lot of these extremist thoughts are really wrapped up in conspiracy theories. So Mm -hmm. I'm curious if all of these groups or thoughts can be traced back to misinformation. Really, QAnon is the standout here. Other ideologies are based in religion, in history, in race relations, in religious scripture, QAnon really stands alone in terms of being based on false false narratives. Only at the very core is there anything true that has to do with, you know, child um, sex trafficking or labor trafficking around the world. Yes, that does occur. But the way that QAnon latched onto this thin thread of real information and then use that as a platform to build all this conspiracy theory stuff was pretty concerning. But again, when people are scared and can't have critical dialogues with each other and, you know, break bread and have a conversation about it, you end up with, um, with this being easier to believe um, and maybe more, um, more of a pull. And I, 
as much as I know that it's a delusional thought system, my heart goes out to anybody that would really feel like nobody is paying attention to this sex trafficking ring around the world. Like if you really believe that, I could understand people being passionate and scared and wanting to affect change. And so it's just really unfortunate that politicians and other people in leadership roles haven't put the um, put society at ease that this is not the case. There really hasn't been much to counter it. So for the first time ever, the Department of Homeland Security is warning that the United States is facing a growing threat from violent domestic extremists who are emboldened by the attack on the Capitol. Mm -hmm. Can you share how an event like the one that we saw on January 6th might encourage some of these different groups? Yeah, well, first of all, we're already seeing this momentum where numbers of people who are engaging in violent extremism Uh, The numbers are higher, but also the number of incidents that are perpetrated is higher. So although in Colorado, for example, it tends to be mostly like propaganda and lettering universities and graffiti on a building or stickering stickering the uh, signs downtown with, you know, Patriot Front stickers and things like this that it just, it ends up feeling quite pervasive because of the number of people and the amount of activity, even if it's not necessarily the violence. But then you have so much in the media that is about violent events, and it seems to be continuing to ramp up, really culminating with the January 6th event. But already there were really concerning things happening in our cities around protests and around like election security and, um, and people were being hurt. I think at this point, uh, my hope is that the events at the Capitol have forced people to move away from this uh, movement because they um, don't hold with the violence. So these, these kinds of attacks tend to have the effect of Um, Most people in the movement dissociating themselves or um, uh, de-escalating because they don't want, they're they're not okay with the violence and don't want to be associated with that. But then you have a small percentage that become even more vehement and their behavior escalates because they do feel emboldened. And so they might listen to you know, those few voices left, whether it's Trump or um, the leader of uh, an extremist group who still holds that these things are true and necessary. It, from a psychological standpoint, it's so hard to walk away from something that you've invested so much of yourself into. It could really break a person apart to have to face that they may have made a lot of sacrifices for something that uh, wasn't worth it or isn't even necessarily true. Can you share with us what are some of the elements that might um, give an extremist group momentum? Like our team was just talking about um, how ISIS continues to have success surviving and recruiting, even though there's campaigns against them and reports of terrible living conditions, you know, what gives them momentum? Extremist groups, and and not just extremist groups, violent extremist groups gain traction by hooking into a complex emotional topic. So 
For example, the KKK in the U.S., not unlike ISIS, puts out things about people in the community being hurt. Um, they, they pose themselves as the only hope for real change and real resolution. So, for example, taking something in the U.S., like the KKK, since its inception, has used immigrant and refugee issues and this idea of not having enough economic resources to go around to scare the general population into thinking that immigrants and refugees are therefore the problem that is causing their own personal economic hardship. And, and so using that narrative to, to uh, incite people to violence, I mean, that, that seems hideous piece is, is immigration a, a complex issue that needs resolution? Absolutely. But the answer that they provide and the claim that they are the only hope uh, is the problematic piece. So I was listening to an interview you did um, at local news here in Denver. And one thing that you said really kind of stuck out to me, you were, you were saying that rather than just law enforcement having the power to stop an extremist group from participating in a violent act, actually, we are the people that could make the biggest difference, everyone listening right now. And I'm sure that we've all seen, you know, a Facebook post in our feed that might have an extremist point of view. And part of your work with the Colorado Resilience uh, Collaborative is teaching people how to handle those situations. So I was wondering if you could walk us through what a good response would be if we see a family member or a friend posting an extreme view like that online. Yeah. So in fact, law enforcement really can't do much short of responding to criminal behavior. So even if they know about an individual or a group who is ramping up and on the pathway to violence, it's not their job to uh, to intervene in the prevention side. So this is where we turn to schools, mental health providers, faith based institutions, parents, friends, because when someone is getting angry and frustrated and they're not getting their personal issues resolved, they tend to start to act different, even look different, um, spend time with different people. They talk about things differently. So for example, uh, maybe a friend or a family member says uh, the first truly racist thing that you've ever heard, right? Come out of their mouth. And you know that that's different for the person, but I mean, that's way short of anything that law enforcement could ever get involved in. It's not their place. So what we found is that years, years prior to someone engaging in violence, they start to have um, changes that friends and family notice. So just like someone might get depressed over time and then two years later have suicidal thoughts or someone might dabble with marijuana but two years later they're using cocaine on a regular basis right like there's always this trajectory we'd never want to wait until it's that much of a problem that someone is suicidal or a drug addict Similarly here, it, the earlier that we can catch these changes, the anger, the underlying unresolved problem for a person and give them a pro-social outlet, give them support, um, mental health services, get them engaged in a, in a good activity where they feel good about their, um, their abilities and that they have a sense of belonging and identity and worth 
in the world, then people don't end up in these places. But but this is this is a conversation to have at home, right? So if, for example, I I found that my child was looking at a website about Patriot Front, I could just raise the question like, oh, that, you know, I've heard of them. Why were, why are you looking that up? What do you find interesting about it? Is this for a school assignment? Did you hear about it somewhere? Maybe they saw it in the news, right? But to, to have a conversation. And so just like these other initiatives, asking often and asking early, you know, that it's just part of the conversation it is important to not make it that big of a deal. But, but we do encourage people to approach it with a tone of curiosity, to be supportive of the person and say like, this behavior doesn't match what I know about you. I know you to be good, truthful, honest, what, you know, whatever um, character piece is there that you know about the person to, to start with that and then say, and then this is the part that I don't understand, but that I want to understand. Um, you never want to argue with the ideology itself, though. I, I do want to be very specific about that because it just leads to an argument and then you have um, really nowhere to go. Yeah, I think that's a really important point because a lot of times people might start there in the conversation. Yeah, and, and just trying to convince someone with opposing facts just is not effective. Is there anything else uh, related to this topic that's been on your mind recently or that you think that people might find interesting or that they should know about? I think people will find that there are more and more opportunities to get educated on these issues. So one thing that my group does in conjunction with the state and with Homeland Security is offer a community awareness briefing. It's kind of a 101 about what violent extremism is. And, and it's designed for really just anybody to grasp what it might actually look like. These are not people who are crazy. I, I think it's important to notice the difference between someone who is angry or a teenager who's experimenting with uh, pieces of their identity versus this trajectory that we know of where people... Um, get themselves in a lot of trouble um, and create havoc in their families, but also hurt others, usually strangers in the community for a cause. And it really never satisfies the problem that they were trying to solve from the beginning. If you're looking for more educational resources or want to reach out to Colorado Resilience Collaborative about a loved one in your life, we're sharing how to get in touch with Rachel's team at our show notes at du.edu slash radioed. Alyssa Hurst is our executive producer, James Swearingen arranged our theme, and Tamara Chapman is our managing editor. I'm Nicole Militello, and this is Radio Ed.